Kelly and I were talking, I don't know, a week or two ago, and um, we were talking about the fact that I understand better now why sometimes pastors will write their sermon title for wherever it's going to get uploaded after the service, because sometimes the last day or two when you're thinking about it, something occurs to you and you realize the thing that's printed in the bulletin maybe doesn't quite capture the idea of the passage. So I'm going to have you take out your bulletin and annotate the sermon title because I think that'll be helpful for us as we think about this passage. I want you to change it to this. Because God is faithful, abide while you wander. Because God is faithful, abide while you wander. The reason that I want to make that change is because as it stands in the bulletin before you changed it just now, it sounds a lot like when we talked about this idea of uh, keeping loyalty with other people that we looked at from Genesis 23 and 24. And one of the things that um, in the, the preaching, teaching workshop we went to recently, one of the things that they really stressed to us is when you're looking at a passage, ask yourself this question. Not just what is this passage saying, but what is this passage saying that is unique compared to other passages in the same book that are saying similar things, but each of them has a slightly different emphasis. Uh, we talked, I think, on uh, one of our Sunday evening discussions about this idea of melodic line or the idea that each book has a theme. Genesis has probably the main theme is this idea of creation and the first part of it and then blessing as you go through the book. And so you're going to see that idea keep coming up. But that's not always the main point in every single passage. And so what's unique about this passage, I think, are, is centered around three words. So as we go through the passage, I want you to listen for three words. One of them is the word oath. One of them is the idea of wandering. And one of them is the idea of blessing. And the challenge as we go through a passage like this or any other passage is what's most important about those repeated words and how do they relate to each other? And so that's what hopefully we will see as we go through this passage. When I start out here in verse 1 about this idea of a famine, we ought to immediately think of a couple of things. One is we ought to think of the fact that Abraham also experienced a famine, because that's what it says, besides the previous one that happened in the days of Abraham. And we probably would also think about the famine at the end of the book that's going to lead Jacob and his family down to Egypt, where Joseph is. This idea of Egypt, I don't want to make it more or different than what it says in the text. But there is something important for us to notice about this idea of Egypt. Egypt, for Abraham, was associated with moving away from the promised land and away from where God had told him to go. Egypt, for Isaac, would be the same kind of a thing because God says, there's a famine here, but stay here and I'll take care of you. Well, then why does God have the Israelites go down to Egypt at the end? Because he's already put Joseph there and because it fulfills the prophecy that he had given to Abraham earlier here in the book of Genesis. 
that and the account of Christ and his family fleeing down to Egypt are the only two examples that I can think of in the Bible where God specifically said, it's okay for you to go to Egypt or go to Egypt. All of the other examples are negative in the way that the Bible describes them. What is Egypt associated with? In some cases, later in Israel's history, Egypt is associated with national power. You will have victory because you have allied yourself with this strong nation. And for the Israelites, they weren't supposed to be trusting in a strong nation. They were supposed to be trusting in their powerful God. In this passage, it doesn't yet have that sense. It's simply the idea of more the idea of provision, right? If I go down to Egypt, there's maybe not a famine there, or maybe they have infrastructure to provide for me, or for some reason, my needs are going to be met if I'm in that place, even if it's not the place that God told me to go. And so I want to start out this chapter by pausing on this idea and thinking about the fact that even though Isaac is going to be wandering through the rest of the chapter, he moves several different places and from in the city to out of the city and all those sorts of things, he's still staying in the land where God said to be. We'll talk more about that as we draw uh, further along in the chapter. Isaac goes to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Uh, that word Gerar is associated with a word that means wandering or foreigner. And so that, I think, is going to become significant because that name keeps getting repeated as we go through this chapter. God appears to him in verse 2, Don't go down to Egypt, stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Again, very many parallels to what God had already said to Abraham. Go to the land I'll show you. Go to the land I've told you about. Be there. Stay there. That's going to be your land. And that's essentially the promise that God repeats to Isaac in verse 3. Notice also in verse 3, we see our word oath. I swore an oath to your father Abraham. God made a covenant. God made an oath. God made a solemn promise that he had bound himself to keep. And God had been, as we've seen from the book of Genesis, he has been faithfully keeping that promise to Abraham. And now the uh, position of leadership, the mantle of authority, that's passed from Abraham to Isaac. Why? Abraham is dead. Isaac is the designated heir. That's what we saw last week. Now, uh, God is going to look after Isaac. Abraham's faith demonstrating obedience is brought up in verse 5. God is continuing to work through this family, not only because he has made promises to do so, but also in connection with their obedience. And so, you know, when we're talking about covenants, is it conditional? Is it unconditional? God's going to keep the promises that he's made. Part of the reason that he's keeping the promises that he's made is because his people are doing the things that he's called them to do. And God can certainly work through other people if his people refuse to obey. Think of the story of Esther. If you don't do this, God can spare his people through one of the other Israelites, but God's put you in a unique position. Same kind of idea here. If Isaac had chosen not to follow God, could God have theoretically raised up someone else from the line of Abraham to be the one through whom he would fulfill the promises? Yes, but God had already said, Isaac, you're the one that's supposed to do it. So Isaac had responsibility to walk in obedience. Verse 6, so Isaac lived at Gerar. 
He's in this place of wandering. It seems, as we'll see from the context of the next part, that he's more in the city, very close up on the city at this point. Now we have the question of whether Isaac is going to be a good or a bad son of his father. When the men saw his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he was afraid to say, my wife, the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. Was this true? In Abraham's case, it was a half-truth. In Isaac's case, it's a lie. It's a stretch to say that his cousin is his sister, right? Uh, so we could pretty much say that he's lying. What is the thing that drives him to lie? He's afraid. Which is ironic because God has just said promises that require him to stay alive for them to be fulfilled. So what he should have been thinking was, God has promised to be with me. God has promised that my descendants will inherit this land. So God's going to keep taking care of me. So I don't need to fear the people who are around me. But he was afraid. And so he lies. But he's caught in his lie. Verse 8 came about when he had been there a long time. Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. There's a difference in the way that a brother and sister might give each other a kiss and a hug and the way that a husband and wife do. And the king of the Philistines said, I see the difference. You lied to me. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said I might die on account of her. Notice Abimelech's response is very similar to the response to Abraham. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. We saw a similar incident in Genesis 12 when Abraham was in Egypt, and we saw a similar incident in Genesis 21, not Genesis 21, Genesis 20, when Abraham behaved this way toward Abimelech. We have to ask ourselves, just because it's uh, something to consider, is the Abimelech that's spoken of here the same person that had this incident with Abraham or a different person? It's important to notice that Abimelech is not a name that's like a unique name. It means something like son of the king. So it could have been just like a title. And then uh, we're going to see the commander of his army in verse 26, Phicol. Same name that we see earlier encountering with Abraham, but that basically is a word that has to do with the idea of this person is the, the voice, the spokesperson. So again, that could also be a title. So we have to ask ourselves, is this the same person that Abraham encountered or a different person than Abraham encountered? I would argue that this is quite possibly the son of the previous king of the Philistines, just like Isaac is the son of Abraham. But again, it's not something the text specifically says. It's just something to think about. It is interesting, if that is the case, that we have the same response between father and son on both sides of the equation. Abraham deceives, Isaac deceives. The pagan king and the pagan king's heir are the ones who are upright in this circumstance. Regardless of if they're the same person or not, they're the ones who are in the right. God's designated 
person, heir, person who he's given his covenant to, is the one that's in the wrong. And part of the reason for that is not considering God's faithfulness, I think. Because if he had thought about the fact that God's made this promise, God kept it to my father, God will keep it with me, I don't think he would have sinned in this way. We're going to see now the idea of blessing. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. How did God bless him? In wealth, primarily, verse 14, possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, which led to what? Jealousy by the Philistines. And then there's this conflict in verse 15, and then there's this response in verse 16, go away, you're too powerful for us. What story does this bring to mind? The jealousy part potentially calls to mind Cain and Abel. But the nearer reference, I think, for the there's not room in the land for both of us, Abraham and Lot. Here's an interesting difference between Abraham and Lot and between Isaac and what takes place in his circumstance, Isaac and the Philistines. Isaac seems to start in or next to the city, moves out into the valley. Lot starts out in the valley, moves into the city. There's not necessarily a huge theological point to be made there, other than the fact that Isaac is one who is, for the most part, aligning himself with following God, and Lot was pretty much doing his own thing, right? And so I think that's the point that we ought to recognize in the direction of Isaac's movement in this story. There's this idea of wells in verse 15. That comes up to the conflict that we saw in Genesis 21. There was a conflict between Abraham and Abimelech about quarreling over the wells. Wells were important if you had lots of livestock because you needed them to water your livestock. Uh, It wasn't enough just to have places for them to graze. They also needed water. Your servants needed water. Wells were important, and so this conflict was significant. And it's being repeated even as it had been previously. Notice that Isaac doesn't say, you guys are all going to get kicked out of the land in 400 years anyway, so you are the ones who should leave. He seeks to make peace with the people in the land, and he moves on and moves outward. But the conflict doesn't stop just because he moves out into the valley. Look at verse 18. He dug again the wells that were dug in the days of his father Abraham, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the same names which his father had given them. His servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, and the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over it too, so he named it Sitna. He moved away from there and dug another well, And they did not quarrel over it, so he named it Rehoboth. The Lord has made room for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. And so we have this idea of the naming of the wells reflecting the condition of the relationship between Isaac and the people of the land. Strife, hatred, room. And so that's the progression in what those names mean. He goes to Beersheba. Beersheba is a place where um, 
Abraham has already been in Genesis 21. Abraham has already dug the well there. Abraham has already named it a place of oath, a place of covenant. That's where Abraham makes his covenant with Abimelech. In that place, God appears to him. I'm the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. In the place of the well of oath, God makes his promises again to Isaac. What's Isaac's response? He built an altar. He called upon the name of the Lord. He pitched his tent, and they dug a well. What's significant about all of these things? The building of an altar and calling on the name of the Lord has been a hallmark of God's people throughout the book of Genesis. Remember back even earlier in the book, I think it's Genesis 5, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. God's people are characterized in the book as those who call upon the name of the Lord. The building of altars is a sign of bringing the appropriate sacrifices to God, and sometimes as a sign of memorial. We'll see that particularly as we continue through the book. Isaac is reflecting his relationship with God, even as, as God has said, I have a relationship with you. I've made promises to you. I'm going to take care of you. And so there is a, 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 a relationship, not just from God to Isaac, but also from Isaac to God. What's the significance of the digging of the well? Isaac is in the midst of potentially a still ongoing famine, staying in the place that God has told him to be, striving to provide his needs within the parameters of God's will, and remembering the things that have taken place in the life of his father Abraham. I think all of those things are going on in this account. Then we come to the end of the chapter. Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor Ahuzeth and Phicol, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly the Lord has been with you, so we said, Let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Was that strictly speaking true? They hadn't actually attacked him. There was this conflict over the wells. There was this sense that the room, there's not enough room in the land for both of us. Probably what they have in mind is the earlier incident of, generally speaking, we've dealt fairly with you even when you haven't dealt fairly with us in the incident of the lying about his wife. And now that they see that God's hand continues to be upon him, they are aligning themselves with him. Why is that significant? Well, in light of Genesis 12, God had said those who bless Abraham and his descendants will be blessed, and those who curse them will be cursed. And so they're choosing to be on the right side of that line of are we with Abraham and his family or are we against Abraham and his family? What's Isaac's response? They, he made them a feast. They ate and drank. Drank in the morning, they arose early and exchanged oaths. Then Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. Now it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug, and he said to them, We have found water. So he called it Sheba or Oath, therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. So we've seen in this passage, I'm not going to deal with verses 34 and 35 because I think they go with chapter 27 in case anyone is worried. Uh, we have seen 
repeatedly in this chapter those ideas of wandering, of blessing, and of oath. Where do we see the idea of wandering? Isaac is sort of wandering around in the land, the city named for foreigners, the valley with the same name, now down to the well of Beersheba. He's moving geographically somewhat southward, not a huge distance, but somewhat southward. But notice where he's not going. He's not going down to Egypt because God said don't go there. So that's what's going on with this idea of wandering. What's going on with the idea of blessing is there is both the recognition that God is blessing him when he's near the city. There is the recognition that God continues to bless him as he continues down into the valley. And there is the recognition by the people of the land God's blessing him. That reinforces this idea from the previous chapter that Isaac is the designated heir, the one that the promises of Abraham are being fulfilled in and through, and that the right response to that is to do him good and not to do him harm. And then we have this idea of oath. God establishes the oath that he made with Abraham, again with Isaac, on these two separate occasions, Isaac first breaks oath in terms of being unfaithful, deceitful in the incident about Rebekah at the beginning of the chapter, but then now by the end of the chapter, he is making an oath, a covenant with the people of the land and promising to be faithful to them in light of their righteousness compared to his lack of it earlier in the chapter. What does that have to do with us? How do all of these ideas tie together? Well, I said that there's this idea that because God is faithful, we ought to abide. Why did I say that? God's faithfulness is his appearing to Isaac and saying, even though there's a famine, I'm going to take care of you. Stay in the land. Isaac continues in the land. God appears to him again. I'm the God of your father. I am with you. I will bless you. I'll multiply your descendants. So God is demonstrating his faithfulness at the beginning of the chapter and toward the end of the chapter. Why did I say abide? Because for Isaac, he was supposed to stay in the land where God had placed him. What's the connection for us today? Not never move from your house. That's not what I'm saying. What is he saying, though? What would the connection be for us? Think about what Jesus said in the book of John. Abide in me. If you are in me and I in you, I'm the vine, you're the branches, you will bear much fruit. Look at verse 12. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. God made Isaac fruitful. The nature of the fruitfulness is different for us than it was for Isaac in that for us it is not primarily evidenced by external possessions and wealth, but the same God who blessed and multiplied Isaac in his fruitfulness also in Christ causes us to be fruitful. And it's not just a figurative thing. Like sometimes we're like, well, it was only the land here and now for us, it's things that we can't touch or see or feel. It was more about tangible things, things that you could touch or see or experience for Isaac. But it was connected with spiritual realities. For us in the New Testament, the emphasis is on spiritual realities, but that's not disconnected from our physical experience. So we have to, we have to be careful here, because if we press this point too much and we say we're exactly like Isaac, 
what error do we end up in? You'll be wealthy if you follow Jesus. And that's the prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel and doesn't fit with all the New Testament says about persecution and about difficulty until we are in God's presence. So we have to be careful that we don't say there's an exact connection. But there is clearly, I think, a connection between this idea of abiding for Isaac, stay in the land where I put you, and us abiding in Christ, stay with the person to whom you are to be attached, right? What about this while you wander part of it? Isaac's wandering about the land. How does the New Testament describe us as God's people? Think about Hebrews 11. We are pilgrims, we are strangers, we are people without a country. That has implications for don't be too attached to this world. But more importantly, it is the realization that our home is not ultimately found in this world. And for Isaac, though he was in the promised land, I think God was in the concept of the promised land, driving at the idea of God having his people with him in eternity. And so in the Old Testament, the promised land becomes a picture for the greater reality of what has been revealed to us that we will all share in, both with those who are believing Israelites and with all those in the church who belong to God today, all of God's people will someday gather together in God's presence in a place that he has prepared for them, in a land that he has made for them, and there will be no more wandering after that point. So, God is faithful. God keeps his promises in this passage. We've seen this from Genesis 12 onward. Technically, we even saw it in the beginning of Genesis. Don't eat of the tree or this will happen. And, and God kept his word. We also see it specifically directed toward a particular person from Genesis 12 onward, Abraham and his descendants. So God is faithful. God is faithful. And so God called Isaac to abide in the land, even as he's wandering around it. God calls us to abide in Christ, even as we wander in this world, anticipating our future rest. And how is that shown? That is shown when we are faithful and when we are fruitful. Isaac demonstrated God's presence poorly when he lied to the foreigners around him. Isaac demonstrated God's faithfulness well when he makes these covenants at the end of the chapter. And people may say, well, they weren't supposed to make covenants with the people of the land because God was going to punish them and they weren't supposed to be in relationships with the people of the land. That's something that God reveals to them later on as they're coming back into the land after Egypt because that's the time when God's going to bring punishment on the land. I think here it's a demonstration of faithfulness. Knowing the promises that God has made, that this is all eventually going to be yours, in the meantime, they are still showing covenant faithfulness even to somewhat undeserving pagan peoples in the land. What does faithfulness look like for us? If God is faithful and we abide in him as we wander in this life, what does faithfulness look like for us? It looks like just because someone doesn't know Christ, we still have a responsibility to be honest and truthful with them, 
we still have a responsibility to be a good testimony in them. What does this look like potentially in our circumstance? Well, if you boast your unsaved neighbor, hey, here's all this money I made under the table and I didn't pay taxes on it, does that give him a good or a bad impression of God's faithfulness and God's character? A bad impression. If you uh, know that there are things that you have committed to do, but you're a person who can't be counted on, your word is not your bond, your word is, if I feel like it, I'll do it. Again, that's a poor testimony to the people around us. Positively speaking, when we reflect God's character, and like Jesus said, your yes is yes, your no is no, and people recognize that. Uh, when we were buying the carpet for my office, I was talking to the lady on the phone. She said, I said, do you need, a, need me to sign anything? She said, if we can't trust someone from the church, who can we trust? That's the idea I'm talking about here, right? And I'm not saying that to boast or brag. That was her words about church people. It wasn't specifically about me. But that's the idea. We, of all people, ought to be faithful and ought to be trustworthy. What about the idea of fruitfulness? How was Isaac's relationship with God demonstrated his fruitfulness? And I, I want to be careful because it's not primarily something he did, although he participated in it. If you look at verse 12, he sowed in the land. He's in the place. He's doing some work. But the, the proportional outpouring of God's blessing has very little to do with what he sows. It has everything to do with God abundantly providing for him. And so in the same way, when I say we are fruitful, it's not as though we have nothing to do with it. Uh, Jesus says you're supposed to bear fruit. The reason that we bear fruit is clearly because the Holy Spirit is present in us. But what does that fruitfulness look like? It can look like our character, Right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, all of those sorts of things. The fruit can be signs of spiritual growth, not just that list of character qualities, but also a progression in maturity in our Christian lives. That fruitfulness can be our sharing the gospel with people and God bringing them to salvation. There's different expressions of fruitfulness in our day, which are different from Isaac sowed, and God gave him way more grain than he had any right to expect. But they're similar, right? Isaac obeys, God abundantly blesses. We obey, God produces in us the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of maturity, the fruit of souls added to his kingdom. And so in those ways, there are, I think, clear parallels between Isaac's experience and our experience. Not identical, but there are connections. And the connection, I think, is this. Because God is faithful, we can abide while we wander. And then that's shown in both faithfulness and fruitfulness. And so that's, I think, how these ideas are tied together. Oath, wandering, blessing. Lord, the song that sometimes gets sung this time of year is I wonder as I wander, but in this passage it's not wondering while we wander and it's knowing. It is being aware of your presence. It is remaining in your presence, not a sort of abiding that's kind of like falling onto the couch and doing nothing, but the kind of abiding that says, 
God said he'll send the rain, but I go plant the seed, and I work hard in it, and then God gives the harvest. And then Paul uses that imagery with the Corinthians. Uh, and I think the same is true in our lives. Not that we work in order to receive salvation, but because we possess salvation, we diligently work, anticipating the work that you are doing in us, based on the faithfulness of the promises that you have made to us, in connection with Christ as we wander through this world. Sometimes we feel like we're not wandering, Lord. We feel like this is it. I should give myself to all that is in this world, all that this world has to offer. Help us to see the danger of that sort of sometimes idolatry, love for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. On the other extreme, help us to recognize that you have a task for us to do in this world, which is not going to get done if we are uh, walled off and isolated and never around the people of this world. Lord, help us to have a proper biblical balance between these two extremes. Help us to live out these truths even this week in a way that honors you. We have opportunity as we gather with family and friends potentially later this week to testify of your faithfulness. We have opportunity to be an example of our connection with Christ and our corresponding loose grasp on this world. We have opportunity to demonstrate faithfulness and to demonstrate fruitfulness in these conversations with people this week. We pray that you would use this both for our encouragement even tonight as we consider your faithfulness particularly and your blessing that we would consider it for their benefit even as we are in the process of inviting people to our Christmas service and continue to be a good testimony as there's people sometimes are a little bit more open this time of year before we go into the dark cold months of the early parts of the year Lord help us to be good stewards of all of these opportunities Help us to reflect these truths in this week and through the end of the year and onward. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.